Hello and welcome back to another episode of Are You A Robot? This is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest challenges that you face when dealing with AI and related technologies. To do that, we bring on some of the cream of the crop in their respective fields and we ask questions, stimulate discussion around best practices that have to do with AI ethics and AI governance. Speaking of discussion, we have started a Slack community to continue this conversation about best practices with some of the best and brightest minds. If you'd like to join, you can find the link to that below in the description. Hope to see you there and hear your voice, hear what you have to say around these topics. Last but not least, I want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, ESG benchmarking firm Ethics Grade. They specialize in technology governance and we would not be here if it weren't for them. We wouldn't have the quality or caliber guests that we have on and it just wouldn't be possible. So I want to say thank you to them. If you're interested in checking out what they do, you can also hit the link below and find out more information. All right, let's talk about our guest on the show today, Dr. Rob Wortham. He has returned to academia following a successful career in industry where he co-founded a software development company. Since returning to Bath, in the United Kingdom in 2014, he has made significant contributions to the field of autonomous robotics, culminating in the publication of his recent book, Transparency for Robots and Autonomous Systems. And don't forget his appearance in the short film and documentary, The Age of AI. So, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation that we had with Rob about muttering robots. Without further ado, Dr. Rob Wortham. Are you a robot? So welcome everyone. We are here with another episode of the Are You a Robot podcast and video cast. Today I am joined by none other than Dr. Rob Wortham. He is a professor of AI and robotics at the University of Bath, and he also dives deep into AI ethics. Today, we're going to be talking about muttering robots and what that entails. I am excited for you to be here, Rob. Thank you for joining us. I want to start off by asking you a question about how you managed to find yourself in the whole AI ethics space. Sure. Well, thank you for uh, your kind introduction, Demetrios. Very, uh, uh, very kind of you to uh, have me on this podcast. Um, so to answer your question, how did I get into this? So my background was um, uh, in engineering originally. That was my first degree and um, started building control systems and stuff, having having finished my degree, um, and and then set up a, a, a software company, which I ran for many years, and we built software in the travel space. Um, so that was um, uh, assistance for large tour operators and, and um, wholesalers and so on. Um, however, having done that for, for many years, I felt I needed a change, needed to do something else. The company was running uh, quite sweetly, and it was I wasn't 
essential to it anymore, really. So um, I started doing a PhD and very quickly became uh, extremely interested in this whole um, area of AI ethics. And I think the reason I became interested was because my supervisor uh, was swinging over to uh, having originally been a psychologist, um, uh, doctor, professor now, Joanna Bryson, um, uh, had, had was originally a psychologist, uh, became a computer scientist and a roboticist. Uh, and then after uh, many years doing that, she, she started to become more interested and more active. I suppose she was always interested, but became much more active in, um, in this AI ethics space and robot ethics space. Uh, and so that became the topic of my of my PhD. My original um, topic was robot action selection. So what I tried to do is combine the challenge of how we um, get a robot to make uh, an intelligent decision, which is what action selection is about. Okay, given the intended aims and goals of the robot uh, and the current sensory input that the robot has, which action should it choose next? And that's a moment by moment problem. Um, and a fascinating research area. But I, I, what I did in my PhD was to combine that with, and can we make those actions and the internal state and processing of the robot transparent in such a way that we can better understand the robot? So that was kind of how I how I got into this space, um, mm. and then started to think about the the ethical implications and the wider uh, contribution of of transparency. Uh, uh, to trust and responsibility and accountability and so on. Yeah, and I think it's brilliant. There's so many things that we can dive into. Um, and I want to get to kind of your uh, your work with Joanne, Joanna, I think is what it, her name is, sorry. And some of the things that she said, because I know she has some uh, controversial opinions, we could say. But before we get into that, you know, I was I was doing some research and watching videos that you've been in. And there's a mini documentary that you did uh, a few years back, I think. And it was talking in, in the documentary, you said how difficult it is for a robot to navigate human environments. And yeah. that whole thing, I think, stems quite nicely with this idea of the decision-making that robots come from. And can you just give us a bit uh, more color around that and a little more detail? Yeah, so um, I think we're going to have to talk about some evolutionary biology here. Uh, we, uh, uh, so the environment that we've constructed around ourselves, um, that, that environment uh, is... It's obviously, it's an artifact. It's something that we've built. It's a it's a human built environment, but it's all part of the phenotype of being a human, right? It's an expression of our genes, and so we and our environment are very well adapted to work together, right? Because we've built an environment which which um, and 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 it's we've built it in a in accordance with a way that works really well for us. Okay, so we have good mental models of how to build home environments and how to navigate home environments. Um, and then we have an extremely uh, fine-tuned, um, high-precision set of senses, right? Primarily eyesight, but people without eyesight navigate their own home perfectly well as well. So we've got, um, we've got hearing, we've got touch, uh, we've got uh, proprioceptive sensing, which means we can sense um, our own movements through space. We can we can determine our own joint angles. You know what position your body's in, even when your eyes are closed and you can't see it. 
Um, you know whether you're upright or not. Okay, we've got these accelerometers in our heads, uh, in our ears. So we've got a huge range of senses, which means we're very finely tuned and adapted and experienced for moving around in human environments. And it is extremely difficult to get robots to be able to to uh, to replicate or simulate or in some other way be able to navigate in in in, in a human environment. Um, in fact, the only way you can effectively do it is to start putting beacons into that environment and then um, uh, providing maps in some sense. Yeah, and it's like the robots are talking to each other in a way. And so they can understand what is where. Yeah, certainly if you have multiple robots, they can all communicate with one another. Yeah, but you can also do this by just having fixed beacons in the room that allows a robot to accurately triangulate itself mm. so that, so it knows where it is relative to those beacons. Um, I, I mean, the, there is this thing called SLAM, simultaneous location and mapping, which is where a robot senses its environment, moves around in that environment, and in the process of moving around, makes a map and localizes itself inside the map. So it's doing those two things at once, which is why it's called. This would be the typical example of uh, the vacuum cleaner that goes around your house, right? Or the lawnmower. Well, well, interesting actually. Those early vacuum cleaners, they just had a random pattern, oh. <laughs> and um, so they didn't know where they were. They just—it's just as long as you have some kind of random movement, eventually you cover the surface. Yeah. It's like those uh, pool cleaning robots. Uh-huh. You know, there's not any intelligence in those pool cleaning robots. They just turn left and right and up and down, and eventually they've cleaned the thing, right? So um, it's not a very efficient, and it takes an awful long time until you get, you know, you can quite never guarantee 100% coverage mm. with that. Um, but that's what those early vacuum cleaners did. And then they started to become more intelligent so they could detect where the dirty parts of the carpet were, like where people walked, because they'd pick up a lot of uh, information from sensors about dust particles. And then they'd uh, uh, keep, keep, keep in that area. So they would sort of stay in a dirty area until they felt it was clean enough to, see, I've been anthropomorphizing just there by saying until it felt it was clean yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, it's very difficult. So um, anyway, so that's robots fast, moving. What is in, that moving word spaces. that you just used? Maybe break it down for us. Yeah, yeah. So anthropomorphizing is um, where we ascribe um, human traits and characteristics to um, non-human Mm-hmm. Um, artifacts or or life forms or animals, whatever. Um, and we've always done that. You know, we see faces in clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about our car. Uh, you know, she doesn't want to start this morning because it's cold. Yeah. You know, we gender it immediately and, and 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 give it some intentionality. We say it doesn't want to start. Mm-hmm. I mean, it obviously doesn't have wants or needs. It's a car. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's built into our language to anthropomorphize. And we, we, we're so heavily cued by something moving intentionally in three-dimensional space, um, such as a robot, that we, we've got like these uh, intentionality detectors in our brain that just detect this thing is decision-making and moving. And, and, and as soon as we do that, we, we ascribe some level of intelligence to it and, and treat it as if it's human or in a human-like way. That's what anthropomorphism is. And I think that segues nicely into one of the questions I wanted to ask you about the feelings that we have when we see the videos of people kicking around like the Boston dynamic dogs or the robot dogs and how it can evoke feelings inside of us that are like empathy that we don't want them to do that. Although there is a part of our brain that knows it's just a robot. It doesn't have, it doesn't care if it gets kicked around. Yeah. 
yeah, I think there's two things going on there. Um, the first thing is some people will uh, worry about the robot and be concerned about the robot being uh, suffering injury and harm and not liking it. So that's definitely anthropomorphization of the robot. Definitely that's what's happening there. I don't do that because I know it's a machine, but it still troubles me to see people behaving violently um, towards anything, really. Mm. I mean, you know, knocking a statue over, yeah. uh, for example, you know, thinking of what uh, what happened in the Middle East with uh, a lot of destruction of ancient ancient statues and so on. It troubles me to, to see people behaving violently. And I think that's something else happening, which is that so interesting. we have an innate bias, which means we don't like it when other people display violence. It troubles us when they do that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's, prob- that's probably a universal thing. One of the, one of the many universal things that all, hu- all humans have is they. We don't want to. I don't want to see people behaving violently. I'm sure you don't. Yeah, know. exactly. And so, let's talk a little bit about the infatuation that us humans have with robots and these sentient robots. And I think you see it in pop culture. You see it from movies like Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever your favorite sci-fi film is. Uh, and, or you see it in even. I was thinking about it. You know costumes in Halloween or in music too. There's this, we like some, I think about Daft Punk and how they make a robotic sound on the voice. And so there's this kind of infatuation that we have with it, but I'm not so sure why that is. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion on that. I think there's a whole lot of things that that come together in our culture um, and in our innate psychology that, that, that kind of result in this fascination um certainly in western culture not so much in the east actually but in western culture we have these um ancient myths of building something and then it coming to life you know i'm sure uh, your listeners will know all of those but yeah. you know the golem the go the mud man story mm-hmm. the golem um uh, pygmalion which is the greek mythology about the the guy that makes a sculpture and falls in love with it and wishes it would come to mm-hmm. life and uh, one of the gods uh, uh, makes that happen, and the thing comes to life and, and kills him. So, uh, and then of course we've got Franken- Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, we've got the Terminator movies, you know, etc., etc., etc. Right. So there's lots of the, that, those things. So we've f- for for thousands of years, literally thousands of years, been thinking about making things that then come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I perhaps that comes from the fact that. Uh, 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 we procreate, we we make babies, right? Mm-hmm. Don't we? So we make something, we make something come to life. That's kind of a crude way to think about yeah. it. We come together, we do some work, and we make something come to life. Um, and um, and then that thing loves us, right? So that the, the and we love the yeah, thing. So hopefully. we have this new bond. We've created something together, and now we love it, and it loves us, and, and that's very important to us. Um, and until uh, they're teenagers, so maybe that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so we've always wanted to um, uh, create things and and breathe life into them in some way. And I think that's the f- part of the fascination with humanoid robots mm. that there is something sensible and, sci- sci- and, and scientific and engineeringly useful about the idea of humanoid robots. In that, if we want them to move around the environments that we're in, well, the environments that we're in are designed for humans. They're not designed for wheeled robots. They're designed for things with legs and arms. And, because that's what they are, right? Think about 
you know, shopping malls and escalators yeah. and stairs at home and sinks and kitchens and cupboards. You need legs and you need arms and you, you need something like that. So, um, uh, uh, it doesn't need to be precisely human, but it needs to be probably humanoid. And it's probably a good idea if the sensors are on the top and something actuating on the bottom. And so, so that, you know, again, that drives us towards building humanoid robots. Mm. Um, I actually think that the most interesting and useful robots are generally to be deployed in places where humans can't go. That's what's really useful. So that might be space, that might be under the ocean, mm -hmm. that might be in the confined spaces like pipes inside nuclear reactors, all of those kind of things where we can build autonomous systems, robotic systems that can do useful work for us in places where we just can't go. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that that's what I focus on when I, when I, uh, in my teaching with my, with my master's students. We're looking at those kind of environments. Um, yeah, those use not, cases. Not building tabletop robots and not building, um, you know, humanoid, uh, socially interactive robots. We're building useful machines to do work. Yeah, more impactful in a way. And I know that that kind of touches on what you said in this documentary that I referred to at the beginning on how if if you had your choice, I think, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I'm wrong, but your idea was something like, if you had your choice, we're just you would like to just keep robots as tools and not try and go down the sentient route or this like um, kind of human consciousness in a robot yeah. route. Yeah. Well, Joanna has a great phrase for this. Joanna says, um, we're obliged not to build machines that we would be obliged to. So what she's saying is we ought not to build autonomous systems that are sentient or can feel pain or in some way would then cause us to care about them more than their replacement value. I mean, obviously we care about our artifacts, right? But we shouldn't really, we shouldn't care about robots more than their replacement value. You know, I care about my phone, but my here's my phone. I, I back it up. My phone's all backed up. So if I smash it, I care about the cost of getting a new phone. But then I click a button, I restore the phone. It's like I've got, an, uh, you know, it's like I've got the old phone back. And there's no reason why you can't do that with any kind of robotic AI system. People say, well, it's got a unique learning experience, but so is my phone. It's got unique data on it. I can back it up, right? So backing up is a thing that you should do. You should never have to feel you need to run back into a, a burning building to save a robot. You just buy a new robot, download the mm. software, right? So that's that's if we start to build machines that we care about in some way, um, then you know we've, we've opening a new, whole new can of worms about patiency, right? Making the moral patients things that we have to care about with for their own intrinsic value, and I I can't see uh, having you know looked at this and and heard the arguments from the opposing side, I still can't see a reason why that would be good for humanity to do that. Mm. Although I'm very interested in consciousness, I do have to say, and, and um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I actively participate in a group that's interested in consciousness and how we might understand it and so on. And so there is a tension there because maybe at some point in the future, we might build something that we felt was minimally conscious or had some sort of internal consciousness. Yeah. We're, we're a long way away from that, but, but um I think that's fascinating as a, as a scientific experiment, but that brings its own moral challenges, right? Because if that became productionized, then we could start to build commercial machines that had some level of consciousness, whatever that was. Yeah. Um, and that then becomes 
problematic. Well, yeah, and I know there is speculation from some of the great minds out there that we're going to be able to download our consciousness onto robots. <laughs> Right. Yes. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's I think that's pushing it very far. That that's um, so that's taking the idea that that, that, that we're a machine. Mm-hmm. Okay, the the Cartesian idea after Descartes, you yeah. know, that we're a machine and that in some way the mind inhabits the machine, uh, and therefore the mind could be extracted from the machine and put yeah. onto a different substrate, and. Um, uh, and therefore, you could run a mind on a computer, and and really, you can't do that. We are wetware. We are what we are. You would need to have a complete reproduction of a of, of a human, the the nervous system, the, the flesh, the blood, um, and 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 all of those all of those drives, right? Because we're flesh and blood, we have certain evolutionary drives mm-hmm. because of because of what we are. And there's there's that wouldn't. It wouldn't make any sense to have that in a machine. Either downloading us or building a machine, it wouldn't have those drives because it wouldn't have had that evolutionary history. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm afraid, you know, when the when the brain shuts off, the person shuts off. There's <laughs> there's nothing you can extract. Yeah. There's, there isn't any. It's 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 a false Cartesian. You know, it's this duality. This idea that the mind is something different from the brain. Yeah, it's based on a lot of assumptions. And yeah. It, it is nice to think about, I think, and again, it goes back to like this human kind of urge that we want to push the boundaries and we want to look at things and see where yeah. where we can take it. But uh, I'm, yeah. And also the quest for immortality as well. Mm-hmm. If we can escape our mortality, our, our fleshy wetness and the fact that we decay and die, if we could escape that, we could become immortal. Yeah. Either our offspring that, that we could become immortal, the children that we produce our, our mechanical children yeah. could become immortal or maybe we could transfer ourselves and become immortal so it is the it is the science fiction quest for immortality mm. so now let's talk a little bit about the idea of diving into these muttering robots and okay. what exactly first when i first heard the the term i thought what that sounds crazy you know like why would i want a robot to be talking and saying anything. And you can explain better what the idea is around muttering robots, but I think it it was something that after I looked into it more and I heard the rationale behind it, it made more sense. So okay. yeah, can you talk about it a little bit? Sure, yeah, sure. So um, so um, part of the research we were doing was um, seeing if people could better understand a machine, a complex machine with some intelligence in it, um, a robot, um, if we made available the, uh, some information about the internal processing and state of that machine. So not just uh, observing the machine, seeing it in its environment, seeing the, the actions that it makes, but being able to uh, take some information from inside the robot about, about the, why those decisions are being made uh, and display that to a user on a screen. And so we built some software, a software architecture to do that. I did work with colleagues uh, to do that. Um, and we did some uh, lots of practical experiments. We did video experiments and in-person experiments in the days where you could do in-person experiments. <laughs> so we did in-person experiments uh, at a science center with uh, um, uh, lots of non-specialist people who just were, I guess they were sort of interested in science, but it was a, a public place where you'd come and uh, and so we did that. 
Um, and I, and I did these experiments internationally as well using uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, which is mm-hmm. a very cool tool that allows you to get hundreds of people to, to interact with something very quickly. So, um, so we did that. And what we found was that, yes, absolutely, if people can see a display, it's not, it's not rocket science, is it? If some people can see a display of what's going on inside the machine when it's operating, uh, then, and it's a very simple graphical display, then they get a better idea of what the machine is, what its goals are, its intentions, what its capabilities are, uh, what its limitations are, right? And they, 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 they calibrate their understanding of the machine. The problem is you can't necessarily always have a display associated with the machine. There are lots of times where you don't want to do that. Um, and it doesn't scale very well. So um, I came up with the idea of, well, could we take this stream of information that was flowing from the robot about its internal state and processing, and we called that a transparency stream, which actually you could take off using Wi-Fi. Um, can we take that information and, and generate an audio output from it, generate speech from it? Well, of course, it's always making decisions, so you end up with something that's muttering. And we, uh, there was quite a complex mechanism for us to decide what it should mutter and, and how, what sentences should be and which is the highest priority and various things. But, um, so there's a paper about that if you're interested. But we, we built this system which meant that the mo- robot, as it was going about its business, constantly told you why it was making the decisions that it was making and what it was trying to achieve. Um, and So that's the muttering robot. And I had in my mind the idea of uh, a robot that interacts uh, with people. And when it interacts, it constantly mutters what it's doing. Um, The human might be able to dial that up or dial that down. So the the human might be able to say, I understand when you do that. You don't need to mutter about that anymore. Just mutter when you're doing something different to that. So you could start to build that in. And once you were happy that you understood how you, how the, what the robot was doing, you could just tell it to shut up and it would, it would stop that muttering. Um, but if you then got confused about what it was doing, you could turn back on the muttering and then you would understand it. So it's a simpler mechanism than a query and answer, okay? Because what you'd ideally like to do is say, why are you doing what you're doing? Uh, that requires quite a bit more computation. That's quite difficult because you have to um, break down the semantics of, of, um, of, of the statement that you, you've, the question that you've, you've generated and then, and then generate some kind of narrative explanation that makes sense. That's quite a difficult thing to do. But an easy thing to do is just to get the robot to constantly mutter what, why it's making the decisions it's making. Just the essay. So that's, um, that's the muttering robot. Yeah, and there's, there's videos of that on the internet, little robot buzzing around doing its muttering. Yeah, and I think it was interesting also how you raised the issue that we are less prone to get angry with the robot when it starts making mistakes. Yeah. Because we understand it more. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And so we understand its limitations. One of the big problems of having non-transparent machines, um, opaque machines, that we, is that we overestimate. We tend to overestimate, um, first of all, the, the range of sensory inputs, the sense they're making of the world, right? What the, All the data that's coming in. We tend to imagine that robots have eyes and they can see objects and so on. That may well not be the case. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we under, we tend to assume they can understand language because humans can, right? Even young children can, so therefore must be easy. Um, so we make these assumptions, and then um, we make assumptions about the uh, the depth of the intentionality of the machine, right? When actually a lot of these machines are just very simple. We um, we assume they're much more complex than they are. We ascribe a lot more intelligence to them than than we 
than would be appropriate. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the ethics around building these robots. And also, I watched your TED talk on the ethics of like having chatbots that fool you into thinking that you're talking with a real human. And I, yeah. I automatically remembered something that I saw, I think it was a few years ago now, about the Google voice assistant or Google assistant that could call a hairdresser and make an appointment for you. And it's completely 100% a robot, but it sounds exactly like a human and it'll laugh in those awkward moments of silence even. And it never identifies itself as a robot. And so that is where, is there a line that should be drawn there? And I think that your take on it, how we don't know that this is a robot and it's collecting data on us. And that should not be okay, right? And so Mm. let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think, to just lay out what I think first of my kind of position on this, I think that um, uh, whenever we interact with a robotic system, um, it should be very made very plain right at the outset that this is a robotic autonomous system, that, that, that this is a machine that's, that we're, we're interacting with. Um, and that could easily be announced at the right at the beginning of a phone call, mm. right? It's just very simply. Uh, another way to cue that is that you have a deliberately robotic voice. This idea that we have to impersonate human voices, um, simulate human voices, it's not necessary for communication. We can have perfectly understandable, um, easy to understand robotic type voices that makes it very plain that that's what we're dealing with. Um, I don't think it's a, I think it's a problematic area to try and fool people into thinking that you're dealing with a human when you're not. Um, As you say, because information may be disclosed, things may be... um, a person may behave very different. I would behave differently from you if we were just down the pub in the corner. Um, we knew we weren't being recorded and so on. And not to say I would be ashamed of what I would say, but, you know, people behave in, in different ways mm-hmm. in different situations. That's the way we interact socially. Um, and I would not be happy if that was recorded and then stored forever and, 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 and picked over five years later for exactly what it was I said about something. Yeah, or... If nothing else, if nothing else, opinions and our, actually our, our ethics in society are moving very fast now, mm. aren't they? So things which were unacceptable... For example, uh, six or seven years ago, uh, plastic bags were not a big deal. <laughs> but remember back before the COVID thing, if you now... If, you, if, if in January this year uh, I had... Uh, turned up to the supermarket with uh, a whole load of plastic bags rather than using reusable things. People start looking, oh, look at that plastic bag use. So all of a sudden, plastic bags aren't a great idea. But they didn't used to be a a bad idea, Mm -hmm. but now they're not such a great idea. So so our our determinations about what we think are uh, right and wrong, to be black and white, but just, you know, good and in those shades, just good and bad things, changes over time. Yeah. And so it's not a good idea, I don't think, to start uh, recording people unless they know they're being recorded. Yeah, and the whole... Or gathering data on people unless they know that's happening. Exactly, because later on, what happens or what could potentially happen is behind the scenes, there are algorithms being built on what you have said or you you have different kind of machine learning models that are being created and recommending you things for something that you said not knowing it and i know this is a big 
topic of debate on whether or not like the companies that be are listening to us on our phone when we're not using our phone because sometimes you see like the Facebook, uh, you may know this person and you go, how do they know that I just met that person the other day? Or I was talking about a mountain bike the other day and now I'm seeing ads for it on Google. This is too creepy. And so those things really need to be addressed when we're being uh, in communication with a robot, whether that is a voice assistant or a chatbot, because I know you mentioned that too. Chatbots are almost easier to fool you into thinking that you're dealing with a real human. And Yeah, text-based things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and that's my first question whenever I go onto any chat system. I, I specifically ask, ask the question, are, are you a human? I just type it in. Uh, and if they say, yeah, of course I am, blah, blah. Well, either they are yeah. or they're now lying to uh-huh. me. And if they're lying to me, then they're going to have a serious problem down track, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. If anything ever comes out from it. So so, um, so I just ask that question, you know. And um, so when, when you speak about the need for innovation, in this TED Talk, I was wondering, because you say we need to innovate, so you don't want to stifle innovation, but you want the right kind of innovation. And so for in your eyes, what is the right kind of innovation? Yeah, so as I kind of mentioned earlier, I think um, building, mach- building machines uh, that are intelligent and can do things that humans can't do uh, is incredibly useful. We've been building machines to do things that humans can't do for a long time aircraft, mining equipment, uh, satellites, loads of things. Uh, We're now adding a a greater level of intelligence to those things and autonomy. Um, And and we can get enormous benefits from that. So we can do remote pipeline inspection of undersea pipes. We can do remote repairs of things. Uh, We can do surveys of fish in the sea. We can do all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things in, in places where people just can't go or it's very unsafe for people to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so nuclear reactors, spent nuclear, recovering. So there's big projects happening around the world now with designing robots to go into in, in radioactive environments to help dismantle mm. old nuclear reactors, for example. Nice. So it's incredibly useful stuff. And the, the, the requirements there are very specialist. If you sent an ordinary average robot in there, it would last 20 minutes and fry just like a person would, right? So you have to, there, are, there are ways to do that. So um, I think that's a clearly an area where uh, we can harness the benefit of this stuff, and and uh, and uh, and there's very little ethical challenge there. It's, you know, it's, it's good. Um, on the other side, on the flip side, um, the idea of build, building purely social robots that interact with us purely for our entertainment and delivering those into homes, particularly targeting children with those soci- socially aware, intelligent machines. Um, I find that very problematic. Um, they're not really solving any problem. They're just another means for entertainment. And as we know, it, uh, entertainment is all about generating dopamine in humans, generating a need, generating, uh, ultimately generating a revenue stream for the people that provide those machines. Um, so this is about making money. This is not about solving a human problem substantially. Yeah, and So I, I, I think those things are, are much more problematic and, and uh, as ethically responsible engineers, I, in fact, I tell my students, you should be thinking about the intended 
consequence and application of the technologies that you, you're developing. Even if you're you know, working for an employer, you need to think still you still have individual responsibility about what should you be working on. Mm. Um, and is this going? Is this a good thing? You know, is this is this good for society to build this this device which uh, forms? Well, the, a child might form a relationship with it. It doesn't really form a relationship with a child, but you know, it for, the child forms a relationship and believes there's a two-way relationship, and then uh, you, the child wants new apps, new capabilities to be added to this thing, and so there's a revenue stream that happens there. Well, it, uh, I, I, I find that problematic. It sounds a bit like stepping up from your classic teddy bear. It's the next level yeah. of of your teddy bear, and then. I mean, I could see the the reverse side that hey, we're doing this already with kids and their teddy bears, and they're just inventing their the story or the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. But I do. That's good, isn't it? That's 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 fostering their creativity, their creativity, their imagination. There's not an ongoing revenue stream. You bought the teddy bear. The teddy bear is what it mm-hmm. is. It's not an internet connected teddy bear. It's not. It's not harvesting data off the child. Yeah. To be able to uh, sell it's you not better. Providing, it's, not, it's not providing in-app purchases, you know? <laughs> it's just a teddy bear. Yeah. So there is, I think there's a fundamental difference. We're not, we're not just enhancing a teddy bear a bit and making a smart bear. Yeah. It's, it's just like a smart speaker. It's very clever to call it a smart speaker, but it's not. It's a robot. Yeah, yeah it sounds uh, It's nicer. not a smart speaker. <laughs> it's much easier for yeah. us to digest if it's a smart speaker, right? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. Marketing does a great job with that. So, yeah, this this is fascinating to me because I really f- look at the future and I think, well, you know, the money that is potentially behind these smart teddy bears is yeah. going to be a driving factor. And so, how can you not let that happen without stifling? the free market of people being able to invent what they want? Do you put regulations on toys, smart toys? Do you put regulations on certain sectors of society where you say, hey, look, these are off limits? Yeah. So we exist at the moment in an, in a very highly regulated space already. So you can't just build any old bridge. This has to be a bridge built according to a whole range of standards and and certifications and designs and the design process itself uh, is very highly regulated right you can't build you know, we don't build bridges and then find that some of them fall down that bridges can't fall down right something terrible's happened if a bridge they don't, they they don't and they don't because they're built um, in a very rigorous way uh, conforming to standards and regulations and so on so um, and same with the drugs industry right we don't just generate some drug, drugs throw them out there and see how people get on with them and then if there's a problem, we do something. You know, there's a huge amount of testing and procedure and process, regulation and so on, and oversight. Um, so there's, we, and I could go on and on, right? I won't bore you, but 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 there's a whole range of regulations when when we, uh, in order to be able to sell any product, if any electrical product, to make sure it doesn't catch fire, that it doesn't give off any toxic fumes, um, that if it fails, it fails in a safe way, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of regulations in all areas of, of manufacturing industry and commerce as well, right? So you've got your 14-day money-back guarantee. You, you know, mm. people, it's not a wild west. It's not a wild west. But in the software industry, um, it, it, it still is a bit of a wild west. People think they can just build 
whatever they want and shove it out there on a web browser and see how people get on with it. And um, if it harms some people, oh, we're terribly sorry. That wasn't our intention. Mm-hmm. And we'll make some changes. And we, we, that's what you see. You see these very, very rich senior executives of, um, of major corporations providing some of our technology. And those are the kind of statements they make. Oh, we just had the best intentions in mind, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that we do need, society needs to decide that we need to come up with some standards. Uh, we need to come up with some uh, oversight and we need, we need some regulations. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And it is one of those. Why would they think that they're exempt from it? Yeah. No one else is exempt from it. Oh, so do you... I have a friend who makes hair dryers. He, he has to conform to a whole lot of regulations. Why would you not have to if you make software? Yeah, and especially as software becomes such an integral part of our life. And so do you see it as like a third-party auditing certification that needs to come in and do oversight? And would that be a private or public? Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is, we're kind of right on the cutting edge here. But um, in Europe, they have a thing called the High-Level Expert Group, Artificial Intelligence, that advise, advises the EU. Um, and um, they've come up with a tool um, uh, called uh, Altai. A-L-T-A-I, and um, this is a self-assessment tool. So essentially you go through and you ask a, a good range of quite detailed questions about the, the processes that you've used for building your AI system, where you've got the data from, uh, what, have, you, have you considered a whole range of things, bias, um, uh, inclusivity, um, accessibility, a whole range of things. Um, uh, and what are your design processes? You know, do you have a good audit trail for all of the data? Do you know the provenance of all of your data? Um, do you know, you know, uh, when it was when it was captured and exactly what what group of people were used to capture that data, etc. And so on. And and you end up and you build a actually a spider chart. And the bigger the area in your spider chart on seven axes, the um, um, uh, I guess the bigger the area, in some sense, the more the more compliant you are to the principles that have been set out along these seven axes. Um, and I think that's great as far as it goes. But I do think it's very difficult for individuals not to be biased themselves when they answer the questions about their own projects. And so this would be a much more rigorous process um, if it were conducted by someone mm, yeah. uh, external, someone suitably qualified. Yeah, some some external auditor who's who's done this before. Uh, and and can uh, can also benchmark you know you against other companies and so on, mm. um, and that's that's really where I think we need to go. And that's not a new idea. So um, I ran a software company, and and for many years that software company we were accredited with ISO nine thousand one, which just is the standard yeah. international standard for software development, right? And it's all about pro- quality standards. So it's all about processes and having the right documentation in place, but also being able to demonstrate at audit that you've been through a whole set of steps and that you've recorded information at each step in the process. And overall, this improves the quality of your software. So um, it's slightly different when we bring data into the equation because we're not just looking at the quality of the software, we're now looking at the provenance of your data and and, and how you've you've processed that data and so on. So if you're doing machine learning, then um, something like that is, is is really what you would want to see from a company. Yeah, and I think that would raise a whole lot of issues with how did you gather this data? And that needs to be very clear so that people are okay with it. And yeah. 
we are making these machine learning models that are yeah. ethical in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well, the GDPR now, the, the European General Data Protection Regulations, um, uh, now specify that when you collect data, uh, you have to specify the purpose for which you're collecting it. So people need to be aware, mm -hmm. that needs to be transparent, why are you collecting this information? And you must only use it for those purposes. So you, you're not supposed to take that data and then use it for some other purpose. Uh -huh. Train a model in order to use it for some other purpose. You're not supposed to repurpose people's data. Um, and again, whether we've done that or not needs to be, a, um, you, can, you can determine that by audit. Yeah. Yeah, it's it seems like the way to go and the future. I think that that needs to happen soon or now, right? Because like you said, and I, I deal a lot with the machine learning community and it is the wild, wild west right now. There is, there's no regulations. There's nothing really in place. You have some things that are happening in fintech and that's where it feels like the majority of the regulations are. But if someone wanted to go out tomorrow and build this teddy bear that we speak of, they could. Yep. And as long as it didn't catch fire, you certainly could yeah. do that. Yeah. So there's no there's no kind of there's no oversight on that, and it, it definitely needs to be more of a talking point. And I think that's why we're here, and we want to raise these mm -hmm. issues. We want to bring this up so that not only people in this circle they understand it but also people that maybe are are interested in these fields or interested in what is going on with ethics and ai they can yeah. also have a better idea of where we are right now and this is to put it bluntly we're not really in the the best place at the moment so uh that being said <laughs> let's try and end on on a nice note do you feel that there, in this um, muttering robots and as we evolve with robotics all around us, what are you excited about? I know you talked about using tools and having robotics as tools and basically building another layer that we've been using, like the industrial revolution that we had. Do you foresee a, another revolution with these robotics that we're going to have? Or is there anything else that you feel is very interesting to be looking into as we move forward? Um, what we haven't talked about is the fascinating field of soft robotics, building uh, very compliant machines. So this is machines that are made out of uh, um, silicone rubber, um, often fluid-powered or, or pneumatically-powered. Um, uh, building building machines that are very compliant, by which I mean, um, like we're we're able to uh, human bodies are very able to take shock, um, and and so we don't need to precisely position ourselves around an object in order to pick it up. We just kind of push our hand towards an object and pull these strings here in our tendons, and uh, and and our hand kind of and it just compliantly closes around the object. You know, as long as we don't squeeze too hard, we won't break the egg. So you don't have to compute a precise grip in order to pick something up. Um, and we can do that because we are so so squishy. And I, I think there's a, a huge opportunity. I mean, there, there are sort of pilot projects and, and small commercial things looking at doing that. But um, I had one of my students last year. We made a great project. It was, um, uh, it was, a, it was a, a robot that would pick things up. It would pick up anything. And it had very little 
um, uh, computational intelligence in it. It had what we would call morphological intelligence. The intelligence was in the design of the artifact, right? Um, so what we had was a balloon filled with uh, coffee granules. And what you do is you push the balloon over whatever the thing is you want to pick up. doesn't matter what it is. You suck the air out and it, it grips this thing very firmly. You pick it up. And we could pick up, you know, a half-liter Coke bottle or a tiny little screw with exactly the same end effector. So that, that was amazing. And then you just, when you want to let go of it, you just put the, let the air back into the, into the balloon. And this end effector costs what, you know, almost nothing. It was a balloon and some coffee granules, instant coffee granules. So that's, that's about trying to think of smart morphological solutions to solve problems. Um, your listeners might be interested in the strand beast, go and look up strand beast. And that's, these are machines that can walk along, uh, walk along a beach, um, uh, with legs and they have only only morphological intelligence there's no there's no power source there's no um there's no electrical actuation in them but it's just 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 because of design so i think that's something uh, and that's not really my my specialist field right that's more your mechanical engineers that that do that work but i think that's fascinating and they'll benefit from a lot of new materials that are coming on right so the material scientists are designing much better materials much tougher materials that are still compliant to be able to uh, do that and get away from these rigid metal, um, um, multi-jointed robots. It's fascinating. So that's that. That's one thing. Yeah, um, I, I, um, I, I think probably um, machine learning is a is is we can argue where it is at the moment, but I think in the end it'll be like most technologies. It's an S curve. You know, it's um, yeah, we th- the bottom part of it looks exponential, and then it tends to flatten out. And we will not build um, complex action selection systems for robots just using current machine learning techniques. I've had projects with students looking at that, and 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 um, and so are very large companies like Google and so on, right? And and we need something else. So I think there's going to be a move back towards um, uh, symbolic processing, okay, um, and and much more human design. Machine learning and learning from data is a very important part of artificial intelligence, but it's not the only part. Uh, and the other guys have been waiting in the wings for a long time. They haven't had much funding. They haven't had much interest. Um, but the guys who are interested in building um, uh, symbol-based systems are uh, are ready to go, really. And and I, I'd like to see more investment and more interest in those approaches to build hybrid machines. Can you explain so a bit more about that? What is symbol ba- like? What does that mean? Yeah. So um, the idea is that you, um, when you look in the code, you actually see symbols that are moving around. When you look inside a neural network, you've just got weights and biases and lots of maths happening, right? You've just got numbers being crunched together um, in in a in a, a symbolic based architecture you have things which are understandable to humans right like like uh, like if you look at the instinct planner that i've did the design based on uh, uh, professor bryson's posh um, environment you actually have the idea of drives so things that a robot wants to get done um, you have actions you have competencies right things that a, a robot is able to do and and those things are programmed so there's a there's a symbolic things um, humans can understand them, and uh, and the machine is processing symbols, moving things around inside the environment uh, in order to get work done. Um, 
and you can express knowledge um, semantically as well, you know, in, in meaningful blocks mm-hmm. of information, which we might call, uh, which could be in the form of kind of language, human language, but but could also be just other blocks of information that have meaning. Okay. So um, there's a there's there's been a lot of work being done on that in the past, but it's kind of not been heavily invested. Certainly not in in the same not the many billions of dollars that have been invested. Um, in machine learning to achieve what we have in machine learning. So machine learning is is, is fantastic for, for lots of things, um, image processing, um, object recognition. Recommender um, systems. <laughs> recommender systems, persuader systems, all that kind of stuff, yeah. But in going back to these kind of the robot environment, it's not great for action selection. And so uh, uh, that's really, that's, that's, that's where I'm looking for the next breakthrough, really. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I love talking to you, Rob. I have one last question, and it is, are you a robot? (laughs) I guess you ask all of your speakers that question, (laughs) right? Um, uh, It depends what you define robot, of course. That's the the question. Uh, um, I'm a living organism, and uh, I'm evolved, and I am unique, uh, and therefore... I don't think I'm a robot. No, for those three reasons. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and enlightening me on so many different topics. It has been an incredible chat. And if anyone wants to continue the conversation with you, is there a way to reach out? Are you active on the social networks or Twitter? Or Yeah. So um, I'm, um, I'm Rob Wortham on Twitter. You'll find me there. Um, I'm, I have a website, uh, robwortham.com. And there's a bunch of content on there and you can contact me through there or have a look at the various stuff that I put together on there. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a couple of ways you can get hold of me. Yeah, Great. All right, everyone. Have a great, really nice day. We will see you later. Thank you very much and thank you for your time. Thank you.